Good morning. Um, I am very excited to preach Psalms 34 to you this morning. And so if uh, you have a Bible or your phone, why don't you go ahead and turn there now. And while you're turning there, um, I'd like to just start by asking you guys a couple of questions. And uh, we're going to be going over a psalm. And in, in, in Psalms, uh, they're, they're more poetic. And so imagery is important. So I'm going to ask you as we go along to imagine things and to think about things and to put your pla- yourself in in this place that we're talking about. But the question is, have you ever needed to be delivered? Have you ever needed to be rescued? Have you been in danger? Have you been in trouble? Have you wrestled with anxiety or depression or guilt? Maybe some of you are in a place right now where you need deliverance. But the next question is, Have you ever been delivered? Have you ever been sick and now you're not? Have you ever been in trouble and now you're not? Have you ever been rescued from danger or heartache or sorrow? I truly believe that my life is a story of my need of deliverance and God's faithfulness in delivering me. And I'm going to tell a quick story. I have many of God delivering me, but I'm going to tell one that I hope is not going to just tug at heartstrings, though it is emotional and powerful. I wanted to set the stage. I wanted to set kind of the tone for how we should approach this passage and what we should wrap our minds around. Um, I uh, grew up in South Carolina. Uh, I lived with my, my mother, my father, my four sisters, and me. I was the oldest, and I was about in sixth grade. And uh, my, my parents' marriage was not doing well. And like so many things when there are relationship problems, it's normally not one fight or one issue. It's normally something that, that builds up until the proverbial straw breaks the camel's back. And it just so happened that on this Sunday morning when I was in sixth grade, that happened. Um, this, this silly fight, I don't even remember what it was about, broke out, but it escalated. And it escalated to the point where my birth dad barricaded my mother and my youngest sister in the basement. And it was terrifying. You can imagine me being the oldest sibling, the only other male in the home, having no physical strength whatsoever to confront the problem at hand. And I can remember not knowing what to do, but but trying to get a plan together, hearing, you know, my mother trying to get out and trying to feel the sense of urgency. What do I do? And uh, we didn't have cell phones back then. We didn't have caller ID. We just had phones. We memorized the numbers. And so um, I didn't want to call the police. Uh, We just had these, you know, wireless phones. Maybe you guys remember them. You couldn't leave very far from where they were plugged in because they wouldn't work. Right? So I could go a little bit outside of the house, but I couldn't go far. And I didn't want to call 911 because that seemed serious. That seemed like something we wouldn't come back from. And so um, it just so happened that in sixth grade, I knew how to drive. And uh, I, I loaded my three other sisters into the van. I started it, and I put it in gear, and I'm sitting there in the driveway, and I'm thinking I can probably go somewhere and find help. But I'm also thinking I can't go any farther from the house without this phone or I won't be able to call for help. 
And I didn't know what the right thing to do was. I even entertained an idea of ramming the van through the basement and making a hole. I don't know why I thought that had less repercussions than calling the police, but I was very close to doing that. And, uh, and you can picture this. We're all in the, in the van, and uh, my sister Crystal's up, up in the front seat next to me, and we're crying, and we're hysterical, and we're saying out loud, God, please help us. We don't know what to do. We need help. And I kid you not, this is not an exaggeration, the phone rings in my hand. Hello? It's a man from church who has never called our house. Hey, Stephen, it's Rob. I just noticed you and your family aren't at church. Is there anything wrong? Do you need any help? Yes! We need help, please come quickly. And I don't remember what I said, but I do remember that within a short amount of time, Rob came with a few other men from the church. He knocked on the front door and we were all delivered. The problem was over. It was solved. Oh, the relief. What a good feeling it is to be delivered from something that I could not deliver myself from. And if you haven't uh, gotten the theme already of Psalms 34, it is written from a place of deliverance. There's even probably a note on the top of Psalms 34 in your Bible that this is written right after David was delivered from King Abimelech. David was facing an issue in which it may have been off with his head. And instead, the Lord delivers him. And he gets to see more days. And he writes this psalm as an outpouring of his heart. He writes this psalm from his mind, from the Spirit of God, in this attitude of deliverance. And there is so much that we can learn from David's outpouring in this moment. So let's go through this passage together. And let's learn about what we should think about and what we should do in our role in our stories of deliverance. We'll start with verses one and two. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Okay, so right off the bat, we have a principle that I want you to write down. We have something that we can learn from David as he has been delivered. And the principle is this, a right response to deliverance is to bless the Lord. A right response to deliverance is to bless the Lord. And look here, it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. David is not saying, I will bless the Lord once I'm delivered. He's saying, I will bless the Lord in my need of delivery and in my deliverance. It is a right response that we should have to bless the Lord. Now, notice that David is doing something very personal at this moment in, this, in the next verse. He directs him, his inward self, his soul to God. His soul makes its boast in the Lord. David is confident in where his deliverance came from. He is not unsure. We do not boast about things that we are unsure about. You will never hear me boast about how I can bench 350 pounds. It will not happen. I am not 
confident in that. But David is so confident that he is willing to boast in his deliverer. Now, before we go any further, if there is one thing that I want everyone to take away from this message, it is this this interwoven theme that I am going to do my best to point out every time it comes. It is this, this concept of two different parties that need to take place in a story of deliverance. And we're going to see this play out, and we're going to see the two parties are humanity and David and God. Okay, And in these two parties, we're going to see that there are actions, roles, and positions that humanity and David needs to have, and that there are also actions, roles, and positions that God has. And this is very important. This theme is literally littered throughout the passage, and I'm hoping that by the time you leave, you understand in the story of deliverance God's role and position in your life and your role in your story of deliverance. So we get to the end of the passage or the end of verse 2 and we already have this theme growing. It says almost as like a side note at the end, let the humble hear and be glad. Humility is going to just be so encompassed in this idea of David and humanity's position before the deliverer, God. It is truly the humble heart that looks to the Lord for their deliverance. It is the humble one who can be glad at this story that we're going through. And so as we uh, move on, Verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Again, I want to point out this theme. David is a poet. This is not a mistake that we have the end of verse 2 talking about the humble hearing and being glad. And then right in verse 3, the Lord being magnified and exalted. We are humble. We exalt the Lord. He is exalted. But this is actually uh, in the whole, the whole Psalms, my, my second favorite verse, my second favorite part. Hopefully we get to my first favorite. Um, but this is my second favorite part, mostly because I am a social guy. If any of you guys know me, you know that I like bringing people along in whatever I'm doing. But here in this passage, when we read, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, we see that now there has been a shift. David is not just wrestling with his soul to orient it towards the Lord. He is now inviting others to do the same. He's telling people, Come with me. Make much of God with me. I have been delivered. Let us magnify him together. This has become a corporate thing. This has become an exciting thing. And and many times um, when I give the announcements, I have had the opportunity of talking about the importance of us being here in this building physically for church. Now, if you're watching this live or you're listening to this later on a podcast, I'm so glad you get to do so. 
But I also hope that there has been a part of you that has recognized that there's something missing when you're not together glorifying God. When we are together magnifying the Lord, we are making much more of Him. I've used the examples of concerts. It's way different to have a concert where Pastor Stephen's up here and it's just me. <laughs> Woo! Right? Versus thousands of people. Woo! It's different. David knows that this story and, and, and the importance of magnifying the Lord has to happen together. And so we get our next principle. Our deliverance should point others to God, and it should encourage them to glorify Him with us. Our deliverance should point others to God and encourage them to make much of Him, to glorify Him with us. And you might say, well, well how does that work? What does that look like? I'm glad you asked because the very next verse we get a little description of this. David starts to tell the story of his deliverance in verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. What a testimony! It is so appropriate to do this in your own life. If you have been delivered, I want you to just imagine for a second that every time God's mighty hand works in your life, you go out and tell others. Imagine the possibility of evangelism in your life. Being able to tell others about the goodness of God and the gospel and, the, and how Jesus rescues us from sins simply by sharing with others your personal story of deliverance. I would encourage you, make a memento in your home. Throw a party and celebrate what God has done. But please tell others about the goodness of God's deliverance in your life, you will be surprised the magnitude of people that want to hear your story of God mightily working in your life. So David has started to tell us a story, and we're going to get more of it. But then um, he does something else. He does something in verse 5. He says, Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. So we already see that David has personally oriented his heart towards God. We already see that David is collectively and corporately orienting his praise and his deliverance towards the deliverer. But now we are seeing that David is reflecting on his deliverance. He's learning from the story. It's not like it just happened and he's like, Woo! Glad that's over. Next thing. No. He's pausing and he's reflecting and he has learned something from this story of deliverance in his life. What has he learned? Well, David has learned here that those who are humble in position of heart and mind, who look to their Lord for salvation, they are never ashamed. This brings us our next principle. When we are delivered, we should reflect 
on it and learn from it. We should make this a discipline in our lives. When we are delivered, we should reflect and learn from God's working in our life. And so when David draws this conclusion of those who look to the deliverer are never ashamed, again, I'm going to call you to imagine this imagery. They are not ashamed. They are the opposite. What are they? Radiant. Have you ever seen a child get the toy that they want on Christmas? You get a glimpse of radiance. Have you ever seen a young couple on their honeymoon? You get a glimpse of radiance. Have you ever seen a picture of a mother holding her newborn baby for the first time after she's delivered it? What is the mother's face? It's radiant. Have you thought about the story of Moses when he gets a glimpse of God's glory? Just a glimpse and he comes down off the mountain and his face is so radiant that he has to cover it up because he's freaking people out. This is the imagery that King David is using in the story. We are not ashamed, we are radiant. But it doesn't, it, it doesn't just stop with the radiance. He put the word ashamed in there. He's using imagery again. He's juxtaposing radiant versus ashamed. Have you ever seen someone's face who is ashamed? Have you ever been ashamed? Your countenance is, it's not radiant. It's downcast. It's trodden. You, you, can't, you can hardly look up. You're shrinking in your face. These are the two images we have the difference between someone who has been delivered from every fear and someone who is still fearful. We have someone who is radiant versus someone who is ashamed. And David is saying that he is looking to the Lord. Again, that theme that is playing out. Where is David's position in this? He's looking to the Lord. What is, what is the Lord doing to David's knowing of where his deliverance comes from. He's giving him a face that is radiant. This imagery of, of God's role of deliverer and provider giving radiant faces and David knowing that he needs the deliverer. A quick aside, I just want to say that uh, in my life, I can, I can personally testify that there have been many times in my life where I've needed deliverance. I've needed deliverance from a struggle or an addiction or um, a sin or even just a trouble, something that wasn't my own fault. And I did not look to the Lord for my deliverance. And I can tell you it has left me ashamed every time. It has not given me a radiant face. It's given me an ashamed one. And that's what David's saying. But then he goes on to tell more of his story in verse 6. He says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and delivered him or saved him out of all of his trouble. Again, notice this position of David. This poor man cried, and the Lord saves him out of all of his trouble. This imagery here, again, this, this poem, mo most of us know what it's like to hear the cry of someone who is truly in need. If you are parents, there is a difference between the cry you hear 95% of the time 
and the cry where you know your child needs help. Your ear is in tune to this cry. And so we get our next principle. If you are in a place where you need deliverance, it is appropriate to cry out to God in your need. It is appropriate to cry out to God in your time of need. Now remember, I hope I'm doing a good job of this, but the main thing I want you to think about is is humanity and David's role and the Savior Deliverer's role, their actions, their positions in the story. But there is another theme that we're going to see developed through this passage as we go, and that's this theme of that although, yes, the Lord does hear everything, his ear is especially in tune to some things. And we're going we're gonna to see that develop. So keep that in mind as we go on. But then we come uh, to verse 7. David's going to do more reflecting, more learning. He's going to get a lesson from his deliverance more so than what we already see. In verse 7 he says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. I'm going to pause just for a second. I'm going to step away from the text. I'm going to be very candid and honest with you. And I'm going to tell you that this is the point of the passage when developing this sermon that I struggled the most with. And I did not struggle with it the most because I I, I wrestled with this concept of fear. I understand it actually very well, I think. I didn't didn't struggle with it because I didn't know what he meant or what, what was implied here. I struggled with it Because this is a massive concept that we will see throughout not just this passage, and it's going to be in a lot of the passage as we go forward, and it's actually one of the things we're going to see that plays into the position and role of David in humanity. But I struggled with it because it's so easy to preach another message within the message. It is very easy for me to go off-tangent here and to talk about in all the wonderful ways we have a fearsome God and that it is right to fear Him. But that is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is not to give us an all-encompassing theological foundation for the concept of fearing the Lord. No, the point of this passage here is to inform us that fearing the Lord is a must in our position before him as deliverer. It is something that is non-negotiable. We are in our need of deliverance to fear the great deliverer. So then we can, we can draw another, another principle from that. Fearing the Lord puts us in our rightful place before him. Fearing the Lord puts us in our rightful place before him. And we're going to see that fearing God is good. We're going to see that it puts us in our rightful place. We also should know that fearing God is wise. Proverbs 1, 7 and 9, 10 say things like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or understanding. It is a foundational thing. We're also going to see later in this passage that fearing God results in our good. But I need to put 
uh, just quickly parameters on this. And uh, you guys can thank Pastor Stephen for his wisdom on these parameters because I talked to him about it. And so this next part is just all him. But um, the parameters that we need to put on this discussion about fearing the Lord are important because I don't want to lose anyone in this. Some of you have, have fear of an abuser. God is not an abuser. God has never abused anyone. God never misuses his power. We do not fear God that way. We actually fear him because he will use his might and his power rightly and justly. He will accomplish what he wills. He is a fearsome God who cannot be stopped, who will always act rightly. We fear him because there is a sharp contrast between us, imperfect, poor, lowly, weak, and God, holy, perfect, exalted, mighty, strong. I thought uh, long and hard about saying this next thing, but I think it's really important. If you go about your days and you don't have a healthy dose of the fear of God when you are making decisions, you have misunderstood your position before him. I would encourage you, go back, study this concept on the fear of God. Uh, many of us got to attend uh, this, this session of Word Partners. Word Partners is a thing that our church does where we get to learn to um, study the Bible better and teach it better. And one of the things, just one of the little t- takeaways that I would encourage you, if you're going to study this concept more on fearing God, I would, just, I would encourage you that um, the Bible uses language that it chooses for a reason. There are words that the Holy Spirit put into his scriptures, and we don't want to try to change the words. We don't want to try to twist it and explain it away. Oh, yeah, fear, but it's not, it's not really fear. We don't want to do that. That was one of the, the snippets of wisdom that um, word partners this time around imparted to me. But let's go back to our passage now, now that we've kind of put some parameters on this. Um, and, and let's just... Let's just realize here that this imagery is most likely a battle one. The Lord encamps around those who fear him. David was no stranger to battle. He camped out in fields. He fought battles in fields and open areas. And this idea of encamping around you is this idea that You're no longer on the front lines. The Lord is around you. Anywhere there is a battle, it has to go through the Lord first. The Lord encamps around you, and what does he do? He delivers you. He's winning the battle. Your fear of God causes him to come down and say, I am a fearsome God, and I will deliver you. And he encamps around you. He makes you safe. 
He's on the front lines, not you. We just sang earlier, Lord of hosts, you're with us, with us in the fires. You will lead us through the fiercest battles. I love when we sing, sing songs like that. It's true. But then the gracious poet David, he does something that I just love in verse 8. We've, we've talked about the fear of the Lord, and we're going to hit it just a little bit more later, but he, he follows verse, verse 7 with verse 8. And verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. God is fearsome, but he is good. I'm sure a lot of you right now are thinking about Chronicles of Narnia, right? Aslan, the main character, he's the, the savior of the story. He's the Messiah figure. He's the good guy, the mighty one. And I think it's Lucy, but she, she discovers that this good guy is a lion. And she goes, a lion? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, safe? He isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. And that is the, the same idea that David is talking about here. And he's not just talking about it. He's inviting you and me to experience it. Oh, the difference in knowing something up here versus experiencing what you know. This morning as I was uh, making my daughter's breakfast, they love parfaits and they love, you know, the granola. But what they especially love is when I put honey on top. And my daughter Penelope said to me, oh, daddy, I just love honey. It is so sweet. How does she know that? How does she know that she loves honey? Because she's experienced it. Because she, she, I, I could have told her, yeah, it's sweet. Okay, Dad, whatever. But, oh, Daddy, I love honey. I've tasted it. And it's sweet. The Lord is inviting us. David is inviting us. We should invite others to experience his goodness. We should invite others into this experience because why? The end of verse 8. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Might I submit that God is a great refuge because he is a fearsome God? He is the perfect place of safety because he is fearsomely mighty. When we take refuge in him, we don't take refuge in something that is weak. There is nothing more fearsome than God. Taking refuge in him is the reason we are safe because he is fearsome and mighty. Okay, moving on, verse 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. We've already covered most that I want to cover today on the topic of fear. But there's one thing that this passage brings out that I really want to make sure we highlight. 
We've already covered that God is good. We've already covered that it's right to fear him. But this is telling us that fearing God brings our good. That God himself is the supplier of what we lack. What are the implications of this verse? Those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. It's that the Lord is supplying the good thing. Back to uh, word partners. I gleaned a lot from it this time. Um, I glean a lot from it every time. But um, in this, uh, we studied the book of Genesis. And in this book, one of the things that hit me probably harder than any other thing, that big light bulb moment, is that there is a great human temptation to believe that we do not need God for paradise, that we don't need him to get what we want, that we ourselves can provide for us so that we have no lack. It's this idea that if God would just go away, if he would just take his justice and his holiness and just leave us alone, we could do it ourselves. If I have done anything up until this point, I am trying to highlight the position of David in his need of deliverance. It's included humility. It's included fear. It will soon include obedience before a holy God. That temptation is none of those things. That temptation is proud. And it is arrogant. It lacks an understanding of who we are before the mighty God. If you read the entire Bible cover to cover, you will see one theme that also emerges is this idea that the worst thing God could do to you or to me is to say, fine, I'm off, hands off. Your will be done, not mine. That is the worst thing that could happen. Why? Because it is God and God alone who supplies what is good. We can draw another principle from this. The Lord is the source of all good things. The Lord is the source of all good things. And so when we, we keep that in mind, we're going to come to the next uh, three verses, uh, 11, 12, 13, actually 4 and 14. And they say, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Just really quickly, it's, it's not a mistake that, that David puts in that he is teaching children these things. I just read this book on being an intentional father. And uh, I often wonder, do I exemplify to my children a fear of the Lord? Do they see me when I make decisions considering a fearsome God that I am accountable to? And if you are wondering this morning, well, what does that look like? 
What does fearing God look like? Uh, A while back, I got to um, preach up here on Titus chapter 3. And one of the main things that I was pulling from the text that was clearly there was this idea that a Christian looked like this. There were certain things that you could actually put your finger on and say, this is what a Christian looks like. It was a measuring stick, a device for you to to stand next to and say, do I need to fall in line more? These verses are the same. These verses are the exact same thing in which we see the fear of the Lord produces certain results in our life. We are told that we should keep from speaking evil or being deceitful. If you want to know if you fear God, do you allow your words to be that of evil? Do you talk about things that you should not? Do you speak to people in a way that is hateful? Do you deceive others? This is a measuring stick. This is a device. There's another one. Do you seek peace and do you pursue it? Is being a peacemaker in our culture right now really popular? No. What is really popular? Division. Being divisive. I can get a lot of people to listen to me if I start pointing, pointing out all the flaws in other people and all the ways in which I don't agree and all the ways I'm willing to fight over this concept or this idea. So many of us We are eager to fight for our faith when instead God is calling us to be faithful in our faith. I promise you there's this great conundrum in following Jesus that if you are faithful in your faith, division will come. It will happen. Who do we follow? Christ. What happened to Christ? He stood before a group of people that yelled, crucify him, crucify him, and they did. Division will come, but in that moment, let's make sure that we are faithful and that it comes over perhaps our literal dead body. Let us be known for seeking peace and pursuing it. When others know you, do they know you as a person who is looking for peace? This is a way that we can measure. And uh, and we can draw draw another conclusion from these verses, uh, verses 11 through 14. The next principle is that fearing the Lord results in faithfulness to his commands. Fearing the Lord results in faithfulness to his commands. He says to keep your tongue from evil and not to speak deceitfully. He says that you should seek peace and pursue it. The next two verses, I'm going to do them um, one at a time, but uh, they, they kind of go hand in hand. Verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. If you remember earlier, I said there's a smaller theme that's developed in which God's ear is especially in tune to certain things. And we see here 
that the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ear is inclined to them. I struggled with the imagery on this and so anytime I struggle with anything, I do what any good husband does. I asked my wife and uh, I said, uh, babe, what, what should I do for imagery here? And like the great mother she is, she said, without even skipping a beat, she said, oh, I know. There are times that I am talking to my children and I know they're not listening. I know they're hearing, but they're not really hearing. And I say to them, I need your eyes. Give me your eyes. This is the imagery here. The Lord's eyes are focused on the righteous. His ear is inclined to them. This weird thing sometimes happens to me as a, uh, as a Christian, and um, it happens more often than you would think. Uh, somebody that I, ra- I, I just barely know comes up to me and says, um, Stephen, I'm in crisis. I need to be delivered. Would you talk to God for me? Would you pray on my behalf? Now, I, honestly, I, um, I have not always handled this the way that I should. I've actually kind of balked at this, and I've thought, God hears everything. You can talk to him. You know, just, I don't need to do it. You do it. No, there's great, great wisdom that these people would do this. They recognize that I belong to God. They recognize that there's something that I have that they don't. This is biblical. We see all the time people praying on behalf of others. Moses, Job, This happens all the time where someone who is close to God prays on behalf of someone else because he has God's ear. But the special attention is not just towards the righteous. Look at verse 16. The face of of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. God also gives a special type of attention to the evil. And that attention is opposition. That attention is annihilation. I remember when Pastor Stephen's dad was here preaching on the concept of how God um, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he stood right about here and he got down like a lineman and he said, you know, you're ready to go and you look at your opponent and you look at your opponent and it's the Lord God Almighty himself. And Dr. Merck, I would just add to this analogy that in this one, he's holding a sickle and he's ready to cut you off from the face of the earth. There's another principle here. Christian, follower of God, take heart. God sees evil and he will deal with it. God sees evil and he will deal with it. Why do you think we can be peacemakers? Why do you think we don't need to exact our own vengeance? Because God will. God deals with evil rightly and justly. All right, finally, we are at, remember we got to my second favorite part? Now we're at my favorite part. Verses 17 through 19. When the righteous cry for help, The Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. This is very similar to verse 6 right in the beginning, right? This cry, this poor man cried, this lowly man cried, this obeyer of you in your word, the righteous man cried for help. And the Lord delivered him out of all of their troubles. There's an implication I've waited until this point to say, but the implication is, if you think about this, David is reveling in the fact that the God Almighty, creator of the universe, who sits on a celestial throne and commands all, hears him when he cries. He's reveling in that fact. We've seen it time and time again. What an amazing principle that the Lord is willing to hear us when we cry. If we humble our hearts before him, if we live in fear of him, if we walk as he has called us to walk, we should have confidence that he hears us and that he's willing to help. This uh, section also includes comfort in your afflictions. Um, I also waited until this point to say that this is my favorite psalm. It has held a special joy and also a special difficulty in preaching it because of the emotions that I have with it. At a time of great tragedy in my life, I poured over the pages of Scripture and I landed in Psalms 34. And I landed at this part where the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and that he saves the crushed in spirit. I was brokenhearted. I was crushed, but the Lord was near and mighty and willing to help. I wish it stopped right there, but right at the end of the, the verse, we get this verse I really don't like. It says, um, affliction of the right, or many are the afflictions of the righteous. I don't like that verse. Many are the afflictions of the righteous? Why? Could we not? Please? No, but of course they are. Look around. If you've been at this church for any number of a couple of years, you've seen it. You've seen righteous people be afflicted, suffer, hurt, have troubles and fears. Of course this happens. It should be expected. The Bible tells us that it will. But God delivers. But God delivers. Thank God it doesn't stop there. But God delivers them out of them all. Um, the next verse, verse 20, uh, it seems to me like when I first studied this that this just came out of nowhere. When I was putting together preaching this, I fully intended on just skipping it and giving a quick little like, this is a clear prophecy about Christ's death, let's move on. Um, but as I meditated on this and as I learned this passage better, I just, I just, I think it is so incredibly fitting that as David is writing a psalm out of his deliverance, he is prophesying 
part of the death of Christ which brings deliverance. How incredible is it that the Spirit of God is working in David's mind that he would go to a prophecy about the death of Christ, the great deliverance, when he's considering his own deliverance. I find that incredibly neat and just like our God to do. All right, we're coming to an end here. Verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. What did we just read in verse 19? Right at the end. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivers them out of them all. What are we reading here? Affliction slays the wicked. Oh, there's a contrast for you. Why? Because God is not the wicked's deliverer. He is their opposer. Verse 16. The, the wicked are slayed in their wickedness by God himself. They will be condemned by the just judge. Earlier I said, right at the beginning of this message, I believe that most of my life is a story about my need of deliverance. But when we read the Bible, we see that all of human history is a story about our need of deliverance. And yes, that includes sickness and hardship and danger and anxiety and grief and depression and physical, tangible things that weigh on your heart and on your mind. But there is something greater that we all must be delivered from. It's sin. The psalmist knows, if you read the psalms, he knows ever so potently that he needs to be delivered from his sin. Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned. Sinful was I from my mother's womb. Remember not the transgressions of my youth. He knows that he needs to be delivered from his sin, and he knows who the deliverer is. But we all need to be delivered from our sin. We need to be delivered from the sin that we don't think we need a deliverer. We need to be delivered from the sin that we believe we are the deliverer. We need to be delivered from the sin of doing evil that God is directly opposed to. Sin is something that looms over us all. The Bible tells us that the wages of it is death. The consequences of it is death. But it is not just talking about a physical death. Death is still the greatest reminder that this world is broken and not yet whole. But there is this greater death that we should fear. It is the death that threatens to cut us off from the deliverer forever. It is the death that we would die in our sins die separate from God and suffer in our sins and in ourself 
forever. So if you're like me, and we've got, you've gone through this passage with me, and you've, you've, you've hung in there, there's a problem with some of the things that I've read. It shows up a, cur- a couple places, verse 15, verse 17, but I'll read verse 17. It says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. What's the problem? I'm not righteous. This really, really bothered me when I was preparing this. When the righteous cry for help. The Bible makes it very clear there's only one person who has walked this earth who has been incredibly, completely righteous. Christ. But brothers and sisters, what has Christ done? Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. What has Christ done? He's conquered our foe of sin and death. He has invited, just as David has invited people along in this journey of the story of deliverance, Christ has invited us into himself to take refuge in him. We are told that we need to be placed in Christ. We are told that this position that we are to have before God is one in which we cry out, I need to be delivered. Christ, you are my deliverer. In which he then comes down and places you into himself. When you repent of your sin, when you trust him as the great deliverer, this happens. And now all of a sudden, you are righteous. You can confidently cry before the king on his celestial throne. And just as Christ, every time cried out to the Father, had every confidence that he was heard, you can have the same confidence if you are in Christ. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord and take confidence in his fearful deliverance. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's pray. Father God, um, you are wonderful. Lord, we confess that we are in great need of you, your fearsome, awesome power of your deliverance in our lives. God, thank you that you sent Christ to deal with this incredible sin Lord, thank you that you have delivered us. Lord, not just in the smaller things of life, but that you have given us hope that we could be placed in you and be made righteous, that you would hear us when we call. Father, you have been so gracious to us. We are grateful for you. We praise you. We thank you that you are the holy, exalted deliverer. In your name, amen.